the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body." the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So far we read in the infallible word of God. In light of that reading, let us consider the instruction of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13. Still working through the Apostles' Creed and specifically our confession of God the Son, In the Apostles' Creed, Lord's Day 13 asks, Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Answer, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord, because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the amazing truth of the gospel is that God is our Father. If you believe in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of God who made all things. And you are his son or daughter not because you believe in him, but because As Paul says in verse 5, he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption is a beautiful statement on the unconditional love of God in the covenant of grace. Just as human parents might choose to adopt a child to be a permanent member of their family, And therefore, they give to that child a home and a name and the assurance of a secure relationship. So to an infinitely higher degree, God adopts us as heirs of his covenant and kingdom in Christ. And therefore, he gives us access to everything the sons and daughters of God ought to have access to by the Spirit. And he pledges to them that he will never leave them or forsake them or take away his name from them. As the Lord's Day says, we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. And yet this adoption only makes sense when you know first that God has an eternal and natural Son. Adoption, we must understand, is always an act of stepping in when the normal family pattern breaks down. For that reason, there is always heartache and grief in the background of adoption. Adoption assumes there is a child that does not have a father or mother who adequately can fulfill the role of a parent so that another must step in and fulfill that role for them. That doesn't mean it's all grief. There's joy also when a family is formed that otherwise would not have been great joy, but it's the kind of joy that comes through the healing of a wound. My point is this. Adoption only makes sense because there is first a family pattern that was set by God in creation. And the same is true in the covenant of grace. Our adoption as children of God only makes sense because God is already a family God who has an eternal and natural son, the one whom we confess to believe, who is the only begotten son of God and our Lord. So I call our attention this morning to Lord's Day 13, and the theme of the sermon is believing in the son's divine lordship. First, we will Identify what it means when we say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, which means that He is the Son of God in a sense entirely unique to Him, but also shows us something of the beauty and the grace of the fact that we are children of God. And then secondly, we'll see how He is our Lord graciously through His act of redeeming us, And then finally, we'll conclude with the application, which is, we must believe this, and namely, we must believe in Him. 
So believing in the Son's divine Lordship, first, uniquely the Son of God, secondly, graciously our Lord, finally, believing in Him. The main point of question and answer 33 is that Jesus is the Son of God uniquely. This unique sonship of Jesus is the wonder that was constantly on display in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Already with his first miracle, Jesus was showing forth the glory of who he is. We know, of course, that water and wine are fundamentally different substances, each with a specific chemical makeup of their own. And yet, with a word from Jesus' mouth, gallons of regular H2O become the best wine that the guests at the wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee have ever tasted. This was a miracle, and it was a miracle specifically calculated to make plain that the one who did this has the power of God. But if that miracle and others like it are not enough to make plain the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, there was also the voice of of the Father that came down from heaven to confirm this. Remember the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized in the waters of the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and as he rose out of the waters, the form of a dove, which was really the Holy Spirit, descended and lighted upon him, and then a voice came from heaven, a voice which was clearly the voice of God, thundering, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that wasn't the only time that that voice was heard, but it was heard once more by Peter, James, and John in the mountain when Jesus was transfigured after Peter made that foolish and silly suggestion, we ought to make some tents here so that You, Lord, and Elijah and Moses can stay together. A cloud, that is, the Shekinah cloud, appeared, and the voice of God was heard, leaving those three disciples trembling on their faces in terror until Jesus came and helped them back to their feet. And the voice said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. And Peter, later on, reflecting on the memory of that voice, says in 2 Peter 1.19, that we have a more sure word of prophecy in the Holy Scriptures. The testimony of God in the infallibly written Scriptures is that Jesus is His Son. But if the voice and testimony of God and the wonders that Jesus did before the eyes of men are not enough to confirm His identity, there is also what Jesus personally said about Himself. It is said sometimes by those who say that they are scholars of the Bible that Jesus never claimed to be the divine and eternal and natural Son of God, but that's false. Jesus said this. He he made very clear in His own words and His own testimony who He is. Specifically when the Jews were asking Him, tell us plainly, 
who you are, whether you are the Christ. This is how Jesus answered them in John 10. He said in verse 25, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he said this, John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And the Jews that he was talking to knew what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him for what they were claiming to be a blasphemy. But it was no blasphemy for Jesus was only speaking the truth that all the things that he had been doing and saying made very clear and that these Jews who were picking up stones themselves knew that he is the Son of God. But if the wonders that Jesus did and the voice from heaven and Jesus' own self-testimony are not enough evidence to make it plain that Jesus is the Son of God, there is also the response of the many who saw his works and believed in him. There is the response of the disciples, for example, who were in that boat on the Sea of Galilee in that storm, who felt the sea go calm all of a sudden at a command from Jesus who said, peace be still. And when they felt the stillness of the seas, they fell on their faces and they said, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Matthew 14, verse 33. Or there is the witness of the centurion, the very man who oversaw the torture and crucifixion of Christ and watched him all through the, of that process until Jesus breathed his last breath and was so moved by what he saw that even as Jesus was dead on the cross, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Mark 15, verse 39. Or there is even the witness of the devils themselves who when confronted by Jesus' rebuke cried out in their terror, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Which was a title given to Jehovah in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. That's Mark 1, verse 24. And this only scratches the surface, beloved, as far as the biblical witness that says that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, that is, eternally and naturally, divinely, the Son of God. But what do those words mean? The Lord's Day says that Jesus or Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. What do those words eternal and natural mean? Well, eternal specifically is in contrast to the teachings of Arius. You remember the name Arius from your ancient church history. Arius is the heretic who said that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. Arius is the one who said that Jesus was, instead of being the eternal Son of God, 
a creature, maybe the oldest creature of all, a creature who was created by God before anything else, before the heavens and the earth, so that there is this mysterious part of Jesus called the Logos that is older than his flesh and blood, but not as old as God himself. As Arius put it, there was a time when the Son was not. And that is why Arius is regarded rightly by the church as a liar and a heretic. Because he contradicts the very words of Christ and the testimony of Scripture. Where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Arius held the truth under in unrighteousness, just like the Jews who picked up stones. And that's also true of the spiritual descendants of Arius. Those who claim themselves to be Christians but really are members of a cult like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims or any liberal Christians who say that Jesus was a good teacher, a very good man, somebody whose example we ought to follow, but the Son of God, I don't know about that. That's Arianism. Children, the person who you know as Jesus Christ has always been here. There was never a time when he was not with the Father and the Spirit. And there's never a time when he will not be who and what he is. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And anyone who says otherwise is a liar and a thief who wants to destroy your soul. That's the truth. He's the eternal Son of God and the natural Son of God. Natural is a word that really gets at the same idea, but from a slightly different angle. We tend to think of the word natural as a synonym for normal or regular. As in there's a certain pattern, and something that is unnatural is something that deviates from that pattern. Now, as an adoptive father, there was a time when I bristled when I read this question and answer for that reason, because... We were trained when we adopted to fend off anyone who would imply that adoption is unnatural. Somebody might ask the question, so which one is your real son? Or who is the natural child and who is the adopted child? And unintentionally, of course, but nevertheless, questions like that can tend to imply that an adoptive family is illegitimate or unnatural. But that's not what the word natural means in this Lord's Day. What it means is partaking of the same nature due to one's birth and origin. Partaking of the same nature because of coming from the same source. So the point is this. Though Jesus is a real human, He is not human first of all. He is divine in His very nature. And His divinity arises from the truth that He comes eternally out of God. He is, as the Nicene Creed puts it, God out of God, light out of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, 
being of one essence with the Father. And that sets Him infinitely apart from you and me. Though we are also, rightly and legitimately, sons and daughters of God. Nevertheless, Jesus is the eternal and natural, divine Son of God, which means He is God Himself come to dwell among us and with us. And that makes Him unique. It sets Him above us because of who He is and what He is. But it also, beloved, indicates what an amazing gift God has given us by adopting us into his own family in the covenant. Now, if I can speak from my own experience for a moment, I think this is something that we tend to miss or maybe don't value the way we ought to value it. We know that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. We know that as the Son of God, we must put our trust in Him because He's worthy of our trust. We know that as the Son of God, we must worship Him because He is God. We know that as the Son of God, He's going to return one day with a face like lightning and He's going to judge the whole world, even the souls of men and angels and demons. And therefore, there is this eternal gulf between Jesus, who is uniquely the Son of God, and us. And that's right. If we don't have a sense of that gulf, We're not Christians. But I wonder if we dare recognize and embrace fully what it means that we also are sons and daughters of God. Do you dare embrace that? Sons and daughters of God and heirs of God in Christ. And I wonder if we dare recognize this not only intellectually on paper, but in the way that we look at life and our experience of life. God, as a father, has known you before you were ever born, before you were even a glint in the eye of your human father or mother, God has known you and known you with the eternal love of a father and out of that eternal love He moved, reached out in time to draw you to Himself in love, to embrace you by the power of His Spirit, to give you a new name in Christ, His own name. And He assigned a paper, as it were, the handwriting of ordinances Signed it in the blood of Christ. And what that paper says is that everything that ought to belong to someone who is my son belongs to you. Because I adopt you to be my son, my daughter in Christ. There's a real sense in which everything that belongs to Jesus Christ, belongs to us, beloved, belongs to you. Now we have to be careful. There is that gulf between Him and us. He's divine. We are human. He's the Lord, as we will see in a moment. And we are subjects in the kingdom. We're Christians. We're not the Christ. And yet, especially as you look at Christ as the Son of God in our flesh, God with us, risen from the dead now, and glorified in His human body. 
What you are looking at is your own future. For you also are sons of God and daughters of God in him. And that's not just my opinion. Sometimes I worry when I preach on adoption that I'm going to skew the text a little bit because of my own experiences. Whenever you have a very intense personal connection to something or experience of something, you're tempted to read truth through that lens, which is a dangerous way to interpret Scripture, even though it's very common in our world today. We're not to read the Bible only from my point of view and then impose that on Scripture instead of just reading the Bible. Or instead, we must just read the Bible for what it says and then adjust our viewpoint accordingly. Nevertheless, I believe objectively that this is the Word of God to us. This is the nature of the covenant. This is what Jesus meant when he said after his resurrection, I go to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. It's the same Father. The Father who begat Jesus Christ eternally is your Father. It's in the passage we read. Verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, is the same being or the same person who is referred to in verse 2 when he is called God our Father. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you know this? Do you know that everything is yours? Do you know that everything is for your good? If you are in the family of God through Christ, God will no more cast you out of his presence than he will cast Christ, his son, down from his place in heaven. That's how secure you are in his family. He's your father, not by your choice. Not by your act, but by his choice and by his act. And he will never disown the son or daughter whom he claims with his own name. But I do want to make a clarifying remark at this point about human and divine adoption. And I think it's important not only to compare, but also to contrast The parallels between these two realities are obvious. Adoption means to make a son or daughter out of someone who is not a son or daughter. Adoption in biblical language is to visit the fatherless in their affliction, and at its best, it is an act of compassion that flows out of our desire to do good to our neighbor in love for the Lord who redeemed us. And that parallels what God has done in the adoption of his people. He makes sons and daughters of those who were no sons and daughters. He says to those who were not my people that they are the children of the living God. That's Paul's words from Romans 9, verse 26. 
But as Christian families that have been formed through adoption will readily testify, there are significant, massive differences between adoption on this level and adoption on this level. And the main one is this. When human parents adopt a child, what we have are sinful parents, a sinful dad and mom, adopting a sinful child into their home, and perhaps making siblings of sinful biological children with sinful adopted children. So that everybody fundamentally is on the same level as far as righteousness is concerned before God. All are fallen, all are needy of grace, just like in any Christian family. And I bring this up to make clear that it's a very different matter when God adopts us into His family. For now we have the God who is holy and righteous and eternally good in Himself, looking down in pity on those who are fallen and sinful and deciding, electing, to make of them sons and daughters and then elevating them so that they become sons and daughters alongside His own eternal and natural Son who is in Himself righteous and divine and there is no sin in Him. I think it's okay and accurate to say there's something gracious about human parents adopting a child. It arises or it ought to arise out of a sense of mercy and compassion on the fatherless. And yet, we're careful with that because we don't want our children to live every day as if they're beholden to our mercy. Mercy that, even at its best, is tainted with the sins of the parents and that they need as much as the children whom they adopt from God. But that, what's going on in a human adoption, is nothing in comparison to the grace and mercy that God shows upon sinners when He adopts them and gives them a place in His own covenant family and household. The gap between those things is as infinite as God Himself is infinitely higher than any of us. And I point this all out and belabor this point a little bit to make clear that there is a distinction within the family of God. And it's a distinction that maybe doesn't fit well with the picture of horizontal or human adoption, but it is a distinction that every Christian will gladly recognize and own up to, which is that though Jesus Christ is our older brother, He is also our Lord. And He is our Lord not only because He is the eternal Son of God, although that's true, as the eternal Son of God, He is the Lord of all things in heaven and in earth. But here within the covenant, within the family of God, He is also our Lord in a special way. He is our Lord as the very person who made our adoption into God's family a reality. That's what verse 5 is saying. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by, by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. We are adopted as children into the family of God by Jesus Christ. 
by is the language of instrumentality. In other words, Jesus is the one who made this adoption possible and then established it as reality for us. We are the children of God through the work of Christ, the eternal and natural Son of God. And specifically, the work of Christ that accomplished this reality for us is the work of redemption, which Paul goes on to say in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And the reason all of that was necessary is because we are not merely orphans who need a compassionate adult to step into our lives. But we are, by our nature, enemies of God, sinners and rebels, deceived by the lies of the devil and walking in the service of Satan, destined for hellfire and the judgment of the God whom we offended through our treason. That background doesn't apply when a Christian family, out of a desire to help and to step in, adopts a child into their home and gives that child a place and loves that child as mutual sinners who together are in need of the grace of God. But that reality of sin, our own sin, is what needed to be overcome in order for us to become the children of God. The power of the devil over us had to be broken. The judgment of God had to be satisfied. The rebellion of our flesh had to be subdued, which means that we ourselves, our own impulses and our own inclinations had to be subdued. Redemption had to occur. And the only way that it could occur was by the offering of the most precious gift imaginable, which all this gold and silver in the world could not even begin to account for, which is the blood of Christ. The death of God the Son in the flesh on the cross. And that is why there is another biblical picture that also represents our relationship to God. Which is that we are the property of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Now to modern sensibilities, that word and the whole idea it represents is utterly offensive. There's nothing more offensive to the mind of modern man than to be the property of somebody else. Even to speak of another as Lord, that is, somebody who is over me, who exercises power over me, is enough to make people bristle nowadays. And here we're saying that sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, are the property of their older brother. That's offensive to modern man with his modern ideas. But I make no apology for the catechism's teaching this morning. For there is nothing more wonderful than to be the property of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and not just His property, but His special possession, which He treasures and loves more than anything else, for which He laid down His life and shed His blood That's what you are to him, beloved. More precious to him than the world itself. If you look out in the world and you find a world full of beautiful sunsets, 
and colors and stars. You are more precious to the only begotten Son of God than any of those things. He gave His life for you. And that's why He elevates you to this high status of being sons and daughters of God, His own brothers and sisters, which is a wonder that we will never have words adequately to capture which is why the best way to respond to this is not merely with words, but is with a whole life lived in thanksgiving to Him. Gratitude. Serve Him. Love Him. Serve Him and love Him by serving and loving those whom He calls His brothers and sisters. Serve Him and love Him by living every day to the praise and the glory of that person whom we together with Christ call our Father, That's all he requires of us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Only love for him who first loved us and gave himself for us and incorporated us into his family through adoption. What it means to believe in him, you already know. We confess these words every Sunday. We're going to confess them again tonight. I believe in the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. Believing this means that we own it as the truth, unapologetically, with everything that it implies. There are more churches and more who go by the name of Christian in our country than we may realize who deny even this basic truth. They will gladly own Jesus as a good teacher. They will gladly own Jesus as a moral example. They will say Jesus is somebody who said some good things, some important things about love, and we should take him seriously and maybe even try to do some of the things that he did. But the eternal and natural Son of God? That's absurd. I can't believe that. I won't believe it. but over against a world that has heard the gospel with all of its supernatural reality and rejects what it clearly says about Christ. If you believe in the Son of God, you will believe what He says about Himself and what the Scripture says about Him. That He is the only begotten Son of God. That He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. That before there was a world and anything in it, there was the Son with His Father in glory and peace. And you will hold on to that truth and you will put your confidence in that truth more than anything else. No matter what any man says, Everything may change in your life as people come and go and as ideas in the world develop. But this always is the same and this always is where I go for comfort in my affliction that my Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. That His purchase of me was His purchase of me through the blood of God made flesh. And that is why I have an everlasting inheritance. Know that, beloved. Beloved. 
unapologetically believe that. Rest in the confidence of his work. But I also want to draw our attention to Paul's prayer in the second part of Ephesians 1. He says in verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And specifically now here, verse 18, Paul says, this is what I'm praying for you, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know it is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come there's a lot there and when you read that you might think well he's he's praying for our conversion, or he's praying for us to have an experience of conversion. And sure, if there is somebody who is an unbeliever in the church, yes, that's our prayer, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would be called into the light of the Son of God and know him. But, But Paul isn't really talking about unbelievers there. This is the epistle to the church. He's addressing God's people in the church. And his prayer is that your eyes would be enlightened. And the point is this. Yes, you know these things are true. You know who Jesus is. You know that he's the Son of God. You know some of the things that he's done. But do you really know? Do you really know what you are? Do you really know what you have? What he's done for you? What he's given you? What hope you have? You look at the whole world and everything in it and you think it's so big and there's so many things going on. So many people, so many objects. But what the gospel is telling us is that it's all for you. As much as it's all for Christ, it's all for you because you also are sons and daughters of God. May your eyes be enlightened to that. More and more, day by day, as you study the Scriptures, as you hear the preaching of His Word, as you believe these things by faith, Do you know what you are in Christ? It's amazing. I can't stand up here and tell you because I don't have the words to capture what he's trying to convey to us. We've only scratched the surface. But may your eyes be open to it. May you believe it. 
And may that give you hope as you live this life, which is often, in many ways, a miserable existence. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. We live in a cursed world. But we have hope because we're the sons and daughters of God. What exceeding greatness of power God has shown to us who believe in His Son. Let the wonder of that fill you up, beloved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we have attempted to scratch the surface And we have hardly even done that. Make us to know. Enlighten our eyes. We believe, O Father, but help our unbelief. We're always like the disciples of little faith. Therefore, we become afraid when we're in the boat, rocking around in the storms of life, forgetting that the eternal and natural Son of God is right there with us, and that with a little word, He can still the sea. And He can send the devils packing, running away in terror, simply at the mention of His name. Open our eyes, O Father, that we may see that every day we live our lives surrounded by the angels, the hosts of heaven, who are commanded by our elder brother to be ministering spirits for our good. Enlighten us, O Father, that our faith may not simply be an intellectual exercise, but that we may be moved in our spirit and in our soul by these things. That we may raise our children to know who and what they are. Sons and daughters of the King. With an eternal inheritance. Let these truths, O Father, inform the way we teach. In our classrooms. And the way we model life. Before our children and friends. And forgive us, O Father when we have been unbelieving. And correct us always in thy grace as a father who corrects his children and chastens the son whom he loves. Forgive our sins. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.